Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 39. The book of Jeremiah, chapter 39. As we continue a sermon series called Landfall, the subtitle, When God's Judgment Meets Our World. I recognize each and every week I am looking at a group of scholars when it comes to the book of Jeremiah. For you have spent more time studying this book than most seminary students ever will. And therefore, I don't have to recount all of it, but I also am so grateful for those of you who are guests or tuning in with us for the very first time. Jeremiah is a prophet in the Old Testament. He prophesied for just about all of his life. In fact, he's called to be a prophet about the age of 20. And in the 39th chapter, we find him around 60 years old. So for 40 years, he has prophesied to Judah. The reason we say Judah is because the kingdom of God of the Old Testament, the Hebrews, founded the nation of Israel. The capital was Jerusalem. Saul ruled over it. David ruled over it. Solomon ruled over it. But because of sin, because of disobedience, after Solomon's reign, the nation divided. A northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom saw judgment of God happen around 722 B.C., so it exists no more by the time we get to Jeremiah. But Jeremiah is prophesying in the 6th century. Specifically, today's text is in 586 B.C., The reason that matters, the reason that's one of the most important dates in Old Testament Bible study is because in 586, the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah is destroyed by the Babylonians under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar had his own agenda. King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were pagans. They were not followers of the Lord God. However, what we see in the book of Jeremiah is that while King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had their geopolitical ambitions, the reality is God was using them. God uses all things for his glory. God uses all peoples for his glory. And so God told Jeremiah, go to Judah and tell them, I've had enough. I've had enough of the idolatry. I've had enough of the adultery. I've had enough of the child sacrifice. I've had enough of the bloodshed. I've had enough of the lack of justice. I've had enough of you mistreating one another. You repent or judgment will come. And so for 40 years, as we have seen, because this series has lasted almost 40 years, for 40 years, Jeremiah preached, turn, repent, judgment is coming. And then there is a point where his preaching changes, and he says, It's too late. Judgment is on its way. Now, in the first chapter of the book of Jeremiah, I won't reference it, but in the first chapter of the book of Jeremiah, God tells Jeremiah, I'm calling you to tear down and to build up. So don't think that God is destroying every Jew, that God is destroying any remnant of Israel. That's not what's happening here. God is purging. God is destroying the city. God is breaking the back of a prideful people so that out of that will come a humble people who will be faithful to the Lord. And so we get to the 39th chapter. And I'd like to give this very brief sermon, a very brief title, Cannot. We don't like that word, what you cannot do. This is the only word I use in parenting now. It's the second most important word in parenting. 
You go, oh, well, the first one, Pastor, say I love you. No, it's not. The first most important word is no. 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 We don't even have to be friends. No. You, follow up, second most important word, cannot. No. 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 Rhett and I went on some errands yesterday. He's my five-year-old. He is Rhett most of the time. When he gets out of his bath, he has claimed the name Naked Boy, and he runs to the house naked. And he tells everybody, here's Naked Boy. I took Rhett with me, and we had several errands to run. I'm preaching for a friend of mine in southern Illinois this week, and I might combine that with a little bit of bow hunting. I don't know. So yesterday is my honeydew day. Honey, what can I do for you? She said, you sure are sweet right before you go on a hunting trip. Hey, take what you can get, babe. I said, what can I do for you? So I ran three or four errands, had several stores to go in. I even braved the Supercenter, the Dorman Supercenter, on a Saturday. Sure did. Let me tell you the trick there. Go in the tire center, park around back, slide in the side door. I just changed your life, I promise you. So Rad and I go in, and at every store, he asks for everything. No, no, no. No, 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 no. And in every store, I meet seven church members. So I'm trying to be attentive to them while I'm going, no, 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 no. It's good to see you too. No, how's your mama? No, I'm praying for you. No, thank you so much. No, this is what we do. We don't like that, but this is what we do. We don't give in or they're gonna keep asking. They're working against us. Children are the enemy. Don't forget that. For you little ears in here, that's not true. We love and adore you. But the answer is still no. We don't like no. We don't like cannot. But there are some times when remembering cannots is incredibly encouraging. In the 39th chapter of the book of Jeremiah, Jerusalem falls, and the description comes right out of the gates. Look at verse 1. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year, by the way, that's 18 months later. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came in and sat in the middle of the gate. Now, in just a few verses, there is a description of a complete and total annihilation of a city. If you want to know more detail about it, the 52nd chapter of the book of Jeremiah, which is the last chapter of the book of Jeremiah, is really a summary. If you went through college at a time when you use cliff notes like I did, Jeremiah 52 is the cliff notes of the fall. In fact, the very next book of the Bible is where Jeremiah laments over the fall of Jerusalem. It's why it's called Lamentations. 
Jeremiah is lamenting. He's weeping. When you study Jeremiah, uh, you find that many scholars called him the weeping prophet for this very reason. Jeremiah is certainly prone to struggle with anger and impatience like the rest of us, but the tone of his life is that he was heartbroken over his people. He wept over them. Listen to how it's described in Lamentations chapter 1. Just two verses, verse 2 and verse 11. She weeps bitterly in the night. He's using the female pronoun to reference the city of Jerusalem. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. That's a reference to Jerusalem's idolatry. They were called the lovers. Among all her lovers... And her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. A little bit later in that same chapter, verse 11. All her people groan as they search for bread. The days are over. We're looking for more gold or more silver. They just want their daily bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. And if you ever read the book of Lamentations, it's a fairly short read, and there's some incredible hope inside of the sorrow. But if you read that, you hear the desperation of that. Now, there's a lot of ways you can study moments in time like this. I don't know if you've ever gotten into studying great moments in the history of great battles. I think about that in reference to what we celebrated this last week in Veterans Day. My mind is always drawn to those brave men and women who served our country so faithfully. I remember seeing the depictions of D-Day as the beaches of Normandy were stormed. I picture those men who courageously tipped that flag flag up on the island of Iwo Jima and all those scenes throughout history. And you can, you can study the facts and the dates and the military strategy and the economic and the social and the political fallout. But one of the more fascinating things, and this is what good biography tellers do, is you study it through the lens of individual people, how it affected their lives. When I was born, there were many World War II veterans among us who could talk about those days. They are few and far between now. They have passed into history. And so to watch those interviews is powerful. Chapter 39 tells us the fate of three men when Jerusalem falls. And from those three men in this brief chapter, I want to remind you of three cannots. Let's look what God's word says, beginning in verse four. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, talking about the Babylonians coming through the breach in the wall, they fled, going out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls, and they went toward Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans, that's another name for the Babylonians, the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And, a, and he passed sentence on him. Now look what happens to Zedekiah. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes. And the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah. Notice he blinded him, but not until he had seen his sons die. And bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house 
and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted to him and the people who remained. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. First cannot. Zedekiah's fate reminds us you cannot outrun the judgment of God. You cannot outrun the judgment of God. If you've been on this journey with me, you know that Zedekiah on multiple occasions has asked Jeremiah, is there a word from the Lord? Is God going to do anything? And every time, not most of the time, not some of the time, not all but one time, every time Jeremiah told Zedekiah the exact same thing. Zedekiah, God's already made his decision. The city's going to be breached. The walls will be broken. It will be under the control of the Babylonians. This is the will of God in judgment to a rebellious nation. So Zedekiah, if you want to live, if you want your people to live, if you want your sons and daughters and nobles to live, surrender, surrender. King Nebuchadnezzar did not set out to initially destroy cities. Ancient kings are like modern presidents, dictators, heads of state. It's a whole lot more profitable to control a thriving, functional economy than it is to destroy a nation and then have to be responsible for its infrastructure. Quite frankly, we don't even know how to figure out our infrastructure in this nation. And so what they would rather have is they would rather have the Judeans come under the control. Some would be exiled. Some would be allowed to live. But Zedekiah was prideful. He would not relent. He would not repent. He would not listen. He would not surrender. His pride cost him his life. And so the man who wouldn't see the will of God couldn't see to walk at the end of the journey. The man who tried so passionately to hold on to his power and his prestige among all of his people saw his people either slaughtered or exiled, and everything they had ever held dear was wasted before him, marching back to a foreign land where he will languish and die in prison. You cannot outrun the judgment of God. Now, there's a lot of things you can do with this. You could scratch out a spot and pitch a fit against America enduring the judgment of God. America is not the new Jerusalem. America is not Israel. We are not God's chosen people. We are a country that has been richly blessed, but you have to be very careful reading all your theology through the lens of one individual who happens to be a city of one country. Today, if I were preaching this text in Nicaragua, if I were preaching this text in Zambia, if I were preaching this text in Poland, the meaning is still the meaning and the meaning is still the same. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your citizenship is. It doesn't make any difference the color of your skin, the opportunities afforded you or the door slammed in your face. You and I will stand one day and we will give an account for our life. And we individually 
and we corporately will have to endure the judgment of God if we do not turn and do what Zedekiah wouldn't do, which is surrender to the control and the will of God. There are only two options. Don't get frustrated when you see sin growing exponentially in our world. Because when you and I act frustrated, certainly be concerned, be heartbroken. But when we act frustrated, then we will either become bitter at our neighbors that don't know the Lord, or we will become cynical. Both show a lack of faith in something. My God will have the last word. Every evil deed will be reckoned. Every single person who intentionally, willfully oppresses, hurts, and destroys others will give an account before God. And knowing this doesn't make me angry. Knowing this allows me the joy of the Lord to recognize there is a God in heaven and you cannot outrun his judgment. Now, right in the midst of this, here is Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is in Zedekiah's jail. When the city is breached, he's already been locked up. We saw that last week in chapters 37 and 38 where Jeremiah is bounced back and forth between one heartache to another. At one point, his life is threatened. He's thrown into a pit. Again, he's rescued in an amazing way. We'll be reminded of that in just a moment. And here we have Jeremiah standing there. The man who's imprisoned him is no longer in power. What will be the fate of Jeremiah? Well, look what the Bible says beginning in verse 11. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuchadnezzar, I hope I don't have to say that word much more, the captain of the guard saying, listen to this, take him, look after him well, and do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. So Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, and here comes another one, Nebuchadnezzar and the rivers and some other guys, verse 14, sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard. They entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Akim, son of Shaphan, and that they should take him home so he lived among the people. Now, I don't have time this morning, but if you were to look in chapter 40, I encourage you to read it. I won't preach it. But if you're going to look in chapter 40, chapter 40 is this moment where Jeremiah is standing there. He's a free man. And the Nebuchadnezzar-appointed council, the Babylonian says, Jeremiah, go where you want to go. You want to go with us? We're going back to Babylon. These are exiles. You can go with us. Or you want to stay here? You do what you want to do. You do what you want to do. Jeremiah. Now, we go from a man who his own people have locked him up and tried to kill him. A pagan king marches in and says, hey, I've heard about you. You know what? You do what you want to do, and my men are going to treat you well. Second, cannot. You cannot outmatch the protection of God. You will never outmatch the protection of God. What wouldn't happen in Jeremiah's life from his own people? God made happen through a pagan king who recognized Jeremiah's righteousness more than his own people did. 
I wouldn't call this vindication. Jeremiah wasn't in it for vindication. Jeremiah didn't weep and preach and struggle because he was angry at his people. He preached and wept and struggled because he loved them and wanted to see them repent. This is the spirit of a prophet. Anybody who speaks on behalf of God's motives must be pure. He or she must desire to see people come to faith and come to trusting and come to a place of repentance. And this was Jeremiah's heart. And it is the irony of all ironies that at the end of the day, Zedekiah said, lock him up. And Nebuchadnezzar said, set him free. And so the close of Zedekiah's chapter in history sees him blind, marching under the judgment of God and Jeremiah free to go wherever he wants under the protection of God through a Babylonian king. You know what I've learned as I age in life? Some of you have been so kind to wish me happy birthday. Today's my birthday. But you know what I've learned as I age in life? We'll take up an offering. At the, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need anything. I'm, well, is, it, is it when you start out life, you're excited about stuff and things and experiences, you know, and then, and then there's the work of kind of starting out as an adult and, and, you, and you sort of kind of begin to say, okay, am I going to marry, have children, job? What, what, God, what do you want me to do? That's certainly a question I hope all our young people ask. And then you sort of kind of get in your lane and you figure out, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. And then when you have moments in your life where you recognize you are aging, you reflect on days like today and the thing I think about the most He's just the faithfulness of God. He's just faithful. He does what he says he's going to do. The greatest birthday present I could ever get is to stand here and do to you and before you what he's called me to do. And when I think about you, I think about four people. You are four people to me. I think about the incredible men and women I serve with, your staff. They make it fun to come to work every day. They are an incredible group of men and women who love you and love the Lord Jesus. They are provided for by your grace and your generosity, but they don't do what they do for a paycheck. They do it because God's called them. I think about the lay leadership of our church, men and women who have just been the greatest cheerleaders of my life and encourage and lead small groups and serve as deacons and elders and do so many different things. And then I think about just Joe church member, Jane church member. Some of you out in the cold this morning helping people park. Others of you holding doors or making coffee. Someone's changing the diaper of a child that you have while you sit in here and enjoy worship today. And I think about the thousands of different ways people serve. And then the fourth person is the person we hadn't reached yet. I think about him or her a lot. When I get discouraged, I'll pull into one of these neighborhoods that's just being built and I'll park and I'll just pray over those empty lots. And just think about those people. They think they're moving over here for a job. They think they're moving here because it's a good place to live. What they don't know is they're gonna find Christ or they're gonna find him in a new and fresh way because of you and your ministry. And Jeremiah's life reminds me, you cannot outmatch the protection of God. Let me give you one more. There's one more character in this chapter. Look at verse 15. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard. Go and say to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian. Now let me remind you, who is Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian? Well, 
He's an Ethiopian. And he served in Zedekiah's leadership. But when Jeremiah was thrown into a pit to die, which happens a few chapters before, Ebed-Melech found out, stepped out on faith, took a risk, and saved Jeremiah's life. God did not forget that. Look what the Bible says. Go and say to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good, and they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid, for I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war. Why? Look at the last phrase of verse 18. Because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. Didn't I just read to you that in chapters 39, chapter 39, verses 1, 2, and 3, that every noble, every member of Zedekiah's leadership was slaughtered? Well, every one of them, but Ebed-Melech. Why? I'll tell you why. Write this down. You cannot outgive the grace of God. You cannot outgive the grace of God. God, in all of his wrath, was looking to destroy this wicked king and the men who served him. But he saw one. He saw one, an Ethiopian, not a Jew, a eunuch, a servant. He saw one and he said, He trusted me. And therefore, I will save his life. You know what the good news is? There is no mention about Ebed-Melech being a Messiah, being perfect, being righteous, never making a mistake. In fact, the reality is Ebed-Melech, like Jeremiah and every other human in the Bible, is a person filled with strengths and weaknesses, great moments of righteousness and great moments of disobedience. But what is the one requirement to receive the limitless grace of God? It's found in the last phrase of that verse I read. I will do this for you, Ebed-Melech, because you put your trust in me. You did not trust Zedekiah. You did not trust idols. You did not trust your own righteousness. You did not trust false gods. You did not trust false motive. You didn't trust illicit gain. You didn't trust sexual pleasure. You didn't trust relationships, power, and influence. You put your trust in me, and therefore I will save you you. And as I thought about that chapter, I thought about the cross of Jesus. Remember what I've taught you this morning? It's very brief. You cannot outrun the judgment of God. You cannot outmatch the protection of God, and you can never, you cannot outgive the grace of God. Did you know all three of those are present at Calvary? You know what Peter said about Christ's death on the cross? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why did he do that? Because you cannot outrun the judgment of God. Jesus endured the judgment of God because the judgment of God must be expressed against sin or God is not holy. He bore our sins. He didn't do it just to make us happy or just to give us an example of a martyr. He bore our sins. He took 
the judgment of God on us. Why? Because you cannot outrun it. Either you endure the judgment of God or you recognize Christ endured it for you. And what happens right after that? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You cannot outmatch the protection of God. That the one who bore the wrath of God would grant me the opportunity to have the righteousness of God in me that I might be protected from the wrath of God. And why is that? Because by his wounds, you have been healed. You cannot outgive the grace of God. And this is why Paul says to the Galatian believers, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is the verse of a triple homicide. Jesus died for Paul. And therefore, Paul says, because he died for me, I died to the world. The world can have its agenda. The world can throw at me anything it wants. I died to that. And the world is dead to me. Not that I don't love the world, not that I don't care about people, but the world no longer con concerns itself with the agenda of my life. The world doesn't determine the direction I go. I can look at the values of the people around me and I can learn very quickly, do they know that you won't outrun the judgment of God, but you can't outmatch the protection of God and you'll never outgive the grace of God. Let me ask you three questions. Do you live with confidence? Have you taken seriously the judgment of God? Do you have the confidence of the protection of God? And are you at a place where your faith has accepted the grace of God? We are a theologically deep, biblically sound church. You know what truth is. You hear it weekly from your small groups and from this pulpit. But I don't ever run past the fact that with a crowd this large and an audience that expansive online, not every one of you know that you know that you're saved. If you know you have a relationship with Christ, then are you walking in such a way that the righteousness with which God has placed in you manifests itself in the behavior, in the relationships, in the way you handle yourself. And if you don't know, are you haunted by the judgment that every person will face without Christ? Because I want you to know, the only thing separating you from the judgment of God or the grace of God is whether or not your trust is in God. And you know what Zedekiah wouldn't do? It's an S word. I thought the S word was saved in this church. It is, but here's another S word. He wouldn't surrender. The gospel is not you tacking Jesus onto your agenda so that you can baptize on your social media post every comment. No, the gospel is surrendering. It's saying, the life I live, I no longer live. I have been crucified with Christ. It is he that lives in me. It's saying, I surrender this dating relationship to you. Your will be done. 
I surrender that job I'm struggling with. Your will be done. I surrender my anger and my frustration with people around me. Your will be done. I surrender. I cannot outrun your judgment. So I surrender and I trust in the one, the Lord Jesus, who took your judgment on himself that I might be saved.